Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Since we first did a deep dive on COVID-19 on the June 30th podcast with Dr. David Katz, so much has changed, or has it? What do we know about COVID today? What don't we know about COVID today? And what I specifically want to know about is what's the functional medicine perspective on COVID? That's what I'm interested in. That's what we're interested in here at My Buddy Green. After all, it took the CDC six months to acknowledge the role of nutrition. And even then, their information was thin and hard to find on the site. What took so long? Not to mention, we just found out recently that Dr. Fauci takes vitamin C and vitamin D. Yes, Dr. Fauci. This is all Functional Medicine 101. As I know that so many of you know, there's so much we can't control with this terrible virus, but there's so much we can control with regards to building our immune resilience. This is the power of functional medicine. And sure, I'm not a doctor, but if you ask me, we need to embrace functional medicine now more than ever. Our lives and the future of this planet might depend on it. Sanitization, masks, distancing, and vaccines help, but there's got to be more for us to do. There's just too much at stake, and it all starts with our immune system and also our environment. Yes, I said our environment. Today, we're going to talk about all of the above with one of the best and the brightest on the subject, Dr. Patrick Hannaway, Senior Advisor to the Institute for Functional Medicine, their COVID-19 Task Force Coordinator, and Co-Chair of the IFM Expert Advisory Board. Patrick, welcome. Thank you, Jason. So it is so great to have you here. And I'm going to make a point to our listeners that today is October 6th, and it's around 4 p.m. on October 6th. And why I'm giving you the timestamp is because this is going to air, you're listening right now, my guest on October 14th. And given that like days turn into years <laughs> in 2020 and what we were talking about last week and how the world changed, um, when, when much of the White House, including the president, got COVID. I just want to like throw that out to everyone. We're, we're talking October 6th, so God willing, when this airs October 14th, not that much change, God willing. Um, but today, we're going to get back and have a discussion around COVID, uh, specifically around the functional medicine perspective on COVID, and that, that's something you're intimately involved with, Patrick, on the task force. So let, let's start there. Talk about your role uh, you know, it, it, with the Institute for Functional Medicine and the COVID-19 Task Force. And, and what is the functional medicine perspective on COVID-19 today, October 6th at 4 p.m.? <laughs> okay, well, um, big task. A lot of things we'll cover, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, just a little bit of background. So I've been a, a, a teacher for in functional medicine for the past 15 plus years I've done research I've you know had a clinical practice of my own here in Asheville North Carolina for over 20 years with my wife family to family and uh, and so that's my background and um, I you know, was asked to be an advisor to senior advisor to the CEO uh, in early March we were talking about it in February and early March and then uh, you know sort of that that weekend that weekend weekend that 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 hit all of us you know somewhere between march 9th and march 16th march 13th and date a lot of us remember it's like 
oh, we have to do something about COVID. We have to, we have to really, you know, look at it and respond in a responsible way. And so I was asked to lead up that task force uh, for the Institute for Functional Medicine. And we had a great group of people. It was the kind of thing like, you know, daily sprint meetings and, you know, trying to figure it out and spending a lot of time and a rapid learning curve to be able to look at how do we help people, you know, to be able to move into that place of, you know, having greater resilience. You know, we didn't know a lot about the virus at that point in time, but we knew that, you know, not unlike, you know, patients with other conditions, it's like if we can help them to be the healthiest possible that they can be, if we can help their immune system, we already knew there were issues with, you know, obesity and diabetes and hypertension. If we could help, you know, to deal with the underlying metabolism of what was going on and help them immunologically, that would be a good thing. And so we said, okay, well, let's take a look at what's out there in the research as it relates to SARS-CoV-1, MERS, um, coronaviruses, because we didn't have research on on SARS-CoV-2. And and let's look at the viral research and let's see which things actually help out, what's going to make a difference. And and we also then have, have developed standards around the work that we do, you know, to be able to say, well, what's the level of evidence and what's the risk of harm? And so, you know, the level of evidence, if you're using something like hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir or dexamethasone, it, you know, there may be a little higher evidence right now, but the risk is also really quite high. Whereas if we're saying, well, you know, you should take some, some quercetin and some vitamin D and some N-acetylcysteine and some vitamin A, all at reasonable amounts, you know, then the risk of harm is relatively low. And so let's say, what can we do in the areas of what's going to help to reduce symptoms, what's going to decrease viral replication, and what's going to strengthen the immune system? And that's what we started off doing. And, uh, and, and we've had a, a interesting journey. We've identified about 25 compounds that we feel have good evidence. We've looked at about 70 compounds um, the, of considerations, and that's going to be herbs and nutraceuticals and, and vitamins as ways of, of being able to help support the patient. And also, you know, within functional medicine, we take a, a food first approach. And, and it's like, and, and what, what about what you're eating and how you're engaging in your life and, you know, you know, working with lifestyle to help you be healthy. So that's where we started. And we can talk about, you know, testing and, and we're now talking about vaccines. And in fact, we're putting together a course that helps people to understand all of these elements. Uh, uh, and so if people are interested at ifm.org, the course is going to be called Resistance, Resilience and Recovery. Um, you know, patient, uh, you know, patient care in, in a pandemic and like how to work with this. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but, you know, we also recognize that, that taking this kind of systems-based approach, functional medicine is a systems-based approach that personalizes care is going to be particularly helpful and important for those long haulers. So there, there's a lot to unpack there and I'll start with, uh, you mentioned diabetes, hypertension, uh, metabolic health, all things we know don't lead to great outcomes for COVID. And I think a frustration of many in the Mind, Body, Green community, and I think the greater frustration that's, that's occurring around the world is, you know, what, what the hell took the CDC so long to acknowledge, <laughs> acknowledge the, the role of health and, 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 and how that plays and outcomes. 
And so, you know, you mentioned food, you mentioned supplements and the way I think about COVID, you know, in so many ways, you know, I, I you know, there's, there's hand sanitizer, you know, there's social distancing, there are masks, there are all these protective measures you can take, uh, which we know help. However, all those things, people still can contract COVID. And so in some, you know, there are only so many things you can control. However, I'm a believer. I think a lot of people in the My Body Green community believe that, you know, in the power of preventative health and wellness, and there are preventative measures, and there are things we can do uh, to strengthen our immune system. And so when you talk about food and you talk about supplements, like what are some of those things that, you know, would have been amazing, granted hindsight's, you know, 2020, uh, that, you know, w- when we went on air in March, we, we could have said to everyone, or, or, or we can't do that in March, we can do it now. Hey, everyone, this is how you should th- be thinking about food. This is how you should be thinking about supplements uh, so that it, for some reason you do contract COVID, you're, you're going to be in a better position you, you, th- than you would without doing these things. What, what are some of those things that come to mind for you? I'm going to I mean, go there, but first I have to say, as you said, you know, those aspects around, you know, barriers that decrease the infectious dose or that eliminate the infectious dose, washing hands, social distancing, physical distancing, I prefer to call it, and, and masks, they make a difference and that's important. But yes, you know, at some point in time, we, we, many of us will get it. And, you know, we've got our coastal immune system and our innate immune system and our adaptive immune system. And how do we help support that? And then we've got, you know, people who are at risk in various ways. So let's talk about food first. And that is, you know, what we end up looking at is that we know and recognize that the use of, of sugars, sugary drinks and, high, and highly processed foods are going to lead to insulin resistance, are going to lead to type 2 diabetes. Well, an interesting thing about the way in which the SARS-CoV-2 virus comes in and binds on the ACE receptor, getting a little nerdy here, but I'm going to just jump into it, you know, binds onto it. And then there's an enzyme that has to clip it so that it can inject the, the RNA into the epithelial cell. You know, and, and that's going to be like in the respiratory mucosa or in the gastrointestinal mucosa. And that, that enzyme is called furin, F-U-R-I-N the furin cleavage complex, you know, it's like, well, what is that? Well, it's on a lot of our cells, but curiously people who are insulin resistant have type two diabetes have significantly higher amounts of furin on their cells. You know, so it's like, Oh, why are they at risk? Oh, that's why they're at risk. Because, because once the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus binds on the ACE receptor, it's got a lot more ability to inject its RNA into the cell because you're diabetic, because you're eating sugary foods, because you're insulin resistant, because you have metabolic syndrome, you're, you're overweight, you know, you're obese, all of those things, you know, so that's actually why one of the concerns with, with, uh, you know, the president, it's like, you know, he, he meets, he's got a BMI of over 30. He meets the definition of obesity. He's 74 years old. It's like, that's one of the reasons why he's at risk and, uh, and many other people are at risk. So right now it's like, Hey, start working on your diet. Start working on, you know, don't don't go for those Krispy Kreme donuts and the potato chips and the comfort foods because you're you're isolated at home or you're quarantined. 
quarantine. You, you know, focus on what are the foods that I can eat that are going to be healthy for me. We can look at, uh, you know, time-restricted feeding, which can help with, with this. Now, there's some new data out in the past couple of weeks that says, uh, maybe that's not the greatest thing in the world. But, you know, focus on making sure you get some exercise and you get enough sleep and you're not having inflammation and you're working on those factors. You know, so, like, that's... A foundational aspect of a functional medicine approach is like let's look at our lifestyle and what we can do to optimize our health and well-being so that if and when we get infected our immune system is strong we don't have as much fear in there we are able to have just a mild case of it and you know not moving on to developing pneumonia not moving on to requiring oxygen not moving on to being in the icu and so if we can mitigate that um and then you know and i'll talk about some other things that we we recommend we talk about but if we can mitigate that then you know we've helped the system tremendously and we've helped the individual tremendously and so vitamin D, for example, mm-hmm. uh, vitamin, everyone knows what vitamin D is. Vitamin D has been on the news forever. And it seems like vitamin D went from a, a, a vitamin that we all knew for various reasons. And, and most of us probably uh, thought of vitamin D and sun made the connection. Um, but vitamin D in terms of vitamins that could really help rose to the forefront here and i think there's a misconception it's, it's actually like a hormone yeah and so you know talk about what we've learned about uh, uh, vitamin d and the powder of vi- vitamin d with regards to, to COVID outcomes well i talked about those three areas in terms of helping the immune system we know vitamins role in vitamin d's role in helping to support uh the immune system that's been well studied and well defined and we knew that right away early on uh, we we know that it's got um some ability to help with the um the ability to uh, engage the innate immune system and and uh, amplify it so it's going to help the immune system and from a symptom reduction standpoint we've seen in many viral infections that vitamin d helps to decrease symptomatology so we knew that we knew that in march and it was you know one of our you know top five recommendations at that point in time you know then more research has been done and people looked at epidemiologically around the world and it's like gosh it seems to be affecting people who have have low vitamin D levels more and in areas where that is an, an epidemic of, of very low vitamin D levels. And then, you know, I think about two months ago, a study came out of uh, Spain, pretty sure it was Spain, you know, where they, they gave it in a controlled fashion uh, in a randomized controlled trial to people who had symptoms and were being admitted to the hospital. And then um, half of them got vitamin D and half of them didn't. And in the group that got vitamin D, um, if my memory serves me right, I have to go back and look at it, but um, no one died and only two people ended up going into the ICU. And in the group that did not get vitamin D, um, two people died and they had a significant number of people. I can't remember what it was. I think it was like 20 people end up going into the ICU. So we see this huge difference. Now, that's just, um, you know, in a research design, you know, that's an interesting study. It provides a basis for what we're talking about. It makes sense with other things. Now, if we were talking about um, a, 
vaccine, or we were talking about remdesivir or some other drug, we would want more studies before we said, let's give this to everybody because there's a risk associated with those things. But with vitamin D, there's really the downside risk is is almost nil. So it's like, well, that just seems like a good thing to do. So when I got a note today from a friend of mine at the Cleveland Clinic saying her daughter just got, you know, diagnosed, you know, what should she do? You know, right there on my list is vitamin D, you know, vitamin D, curcumin, quercetin, vitamin A, and, and acetylcysteine. It's like, those are, those are the top ones and they still are the top ones. Now, when people move, start moving into having symptoms, there's other things that we're going to look at Chinese skull cap and things of that nature that are going to be more specific and focused based upon whatever symptoms that person is having. Um, my you know, friend and colleague in New York, Leo Gallen, you know, also talks about the use of, uh, of heparin, of heparin um, nose uh, spray, because it helps to decrease the binding uh, that's going on. So there's a lot of different opportunities and agents that we have, and that's what we talk about, um, and specifically supporting the immune system, decreasing viral replication, and decreasing symptoms. So you mentioned quercetin. I love quercetin. Mm -hmm. So can you, mm -hmm. and I've also, I've known quercetin in terms of uh, strengthening the immune system. And can, so can you talk, is quercetin, just to clarify, is it uh, for immune resilience or is it um, essentially preventative and strengthening the immune system versus being reactive and, or is it both? It, it, it works in both ways, um, but it is important on the on the side of, of the bioflavonoid and its effect on being able to help reduce the reactive oxygen species, help with mitochondrial function and efficiency, and to be able to uh, support the immune system. So it's working in multiple ways. Uh, on that level, and I, I too, I, I love quercetin, and I think, and when we were looking at it, you know, that was kind of we, we ranked them, um, you know, where we thought, and that was like the number two thing. What was? Well, I'm curious. What were the top three? Curcumin, quercetin, and zinc. Got it. Zinc. Yeah. Um, I, don't you love it when like these 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 oldies but goodies, you know, surface to the top, you know, zinc, curcumin. It's like, oh, we, we know all these. Well, it's, and it's because, you know, the way in which, the, you know, like you look at curcumin and the way in which it's working on the activation of inflammation or decreasing the activation of inflammation, it just makes perfect sense. You know, and then and then you go and you say, like, well, why has it been used in, in Ayurvedic, you know, um, medicine for such, and, and for cooking for such a long period of time? And, you know, it's because of the benefit of it. So, yeah, there and the other thing is that when we look at these kinds of agents, particularly things like you know um, that are natural agents like you know quercetin and, and curcumin um, what we find is that it they have multiple different places where they're working it's not just a singular effect it's not like a drug a drug has a very high affinity and a very tight focus of what it's doing which also means it's going to tend to have have a bunch of side effects because and and one of my teachers used to say, like, there's no such thing as side effects. There's effects you like and effects you don't like. <laughs> and, and you know, in the drugs, it, they have a lot of effects that we don't like because they're not germane. Whereas when we have something that's that's got much more of a, of a plasticity to it, such as an, a natural agent that's been around for a long period of time, it's going to work in a lot of different areas at a lower level. And so you've got a lot more room for error and a lot more resiliency. 
Yeah, and, and without going, we're not going to go down the vaccine rabbit hole. Uh, you know, and look, there there are vaccines out there that have been out for ten years, thirty years, fifty years. Uh, but I don't think myself. I would say I wouldn't be excited about a vaccine that's been out a week. <laughs> In terms of for for myself, my children, my family, or anyone I love, there's just a lot of you know you know, to each his own. And I think situations are unique depending on, uh, you know, how serious the situation is. But um, I, I know a lot of people would not be excited about taking something that's been out a week. And with that said, you know, there are back, there's a flu vaccine and, and, and people take that, uh, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, some people still get the flu. And I go back to this, you know, what, what we're hitting on is, you know, what are the preventative steps we can take as individuals to make sure, you know, we're our, we're our best, healthiest, uh, immune resilient self, if you will. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we can even just touch on vaccines for just a moment. But, you know, to me, it has to do with like, where's the middle ground? Where is the opportunity to look at the agent and the host and the environment all together and how they how they work and what's needed? And there are going to be some people who will definitely benefit from a vaccine. Now, we want to make sure that it's safe and we want to make sure that, you know, we've we've got and, and are dealing with, um, you know, the issues where there's transparency and scientific integrity. And and there's not just going to be a vaccine. There's going to be a bunch of vaccines and they're going to be working in different ways. Some of them are going to be live attenuated virus. Some are going to be dead virus. Some of them are going to be, you know, RNA inserted inside a, a little liposomal particle. Um, there's lots of different ways, which has never been done before. And then how it how it gets delivered and, and so many factors that are going to be going on that we're going to need to sort through. And I'm with you. Like, I don't want to be, you know, getting the first one. You know, I... I I, I want to see, let's, let's see how this bears out. Um, I, I am, I do have um, some risk factors with my immune system that I need to pay attention to, but I'm going to put my bets on, you know, zinc and quercetin and, and curcumin and vitamin D and eating a good diet and, and paying attention to metabolic issues long before I'm going to be talking about a vaccine for myself. Yeah. And, and that means a lot. I, I'd be remiss not to, we, we should cover it. You, you know, diagnosed with stage four cancer, you know, there, there are risks and that's, we're going to have to, uh, have you back and, and go deep into that. But, uh, w when, when you say having some risks, like you, you're serious, it's not just, <laughs> you're not making, not making light of that. Um, yeah. And so I do want to stay on that for a moment though. What message do you have for people who, you know, are, are a bit compromised who are extraordinarily look there are various degrees of worry and and i would say there's there's no right way to worry and there's no wrong way to worry but what i'm curious what message do you have for those people who are compromised right now well i, I first say like we all have risk in some way shape or form and there's going to be variations in that risk but 
I don't want to, you know, move through life of being fearful of engaging life and shutting up and closing everything down because there's some small degree of risk. There is some risk associated with this. So what do we do to manage the risk? You know, like, so paying attention to the first things that we talked about, you know, you know, wear a mask, you know, wait six feet apart and, you know, wash your hands. And those are our simple, basic principles. The mask probably being pretty clearly the most important of them work on your diet work on your immune system work on your on your stuff um, that's going on and you know be able to engage life work to re-engage life i mean we're seeing you know the increased rates of 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 violence of addiction of alcoholism of depression of suicide all you know, major factors that are going on. Work on yourself, work on, on helping to, to get yourself to be the healthiest possible that you can. You know, that's it's what I tell cancer patients too. Like if you're gonna undergo chemotherapy or radiation therapy or whatever you're gonna do, like be the healthiest person you can be going into that. That is going to help you in the process so that you're an exceptional patient, you're an outlier, you're different than everybody else. And so that's, that's what I talk about. And I, I think it's really important not to move from a place of fear and retrenchment and, and, and separating ourselves from the world, but rather how do we begin to build, you know, more of a place of, um, of resistance and resilience. And that is, okay, let's strengthen the immune system. Let's get that going. You know, we're not going to do that. If you stop your exercise program, your immune system's not going to be working as well. So that's that's the message. Yeah, and we haven't been good there. We haven't. And it's been a frustration of ours and my buddy Green. And I think, uh, you know, someone I've been I've been watching uh, quite a bit, uh, Bill Maher, who I never thought would be the voice of reason for health, has been harping on that one. Um, but we definitely have an opportunity. This is a wake up call for, for many. It's time to it's time to get moving. It's time to eat more plants. It's time to strengthen our immune system. There's a lot we can control there. And uh, for a world which we feel like is spiraling out of control and we have no control over and it's causing a lot of anxiety and I get it. Um, you know, here's something we can take control of. Yeah. One of the other things I, I talk about and I really like to emphasize and I, I've seen more of it and I've been really pleased with it is I'm talking about getting out in the natural world. You know, I mean, somehow in, you know, March and April, it's like, you know, it seemed like the birds were singing more. It seemed like, you know, I mean, there were no jet planes in the air. The clouds looked different. The sky looked different. The, you know, being out there, you know, how much of it was it changed and how much of it was like, I'm, I'm just more aware of it. I'm spending time and I'm, I'm relating to it. And this is to me a, a very interesting aspect of the whole thing because it's about like what our relationship with the natural world is. And how we're working with that is really important. It helps, you know, we can talk about forest bathing and its impact on cytokines and, and strengthen the immune system. And yeah, there, there's an aspect there. But there's also, it, we can talk about the, the micro, microbiome of the world and the microbiome of our forest and ourselves and how to do that. And we can see that having an impact on disease, on the immune system. Like these pieces are all related to each other. But I want to read something to you, and I want to ask you if you can think of who might have written this. Okay, and this is like this is like two weeks ago, um, a month ago. Sorry, September third. 
The COVID-19 pandemic is yet another reminded added to another reminder added to the rapidly growing archive of historical reminders that in a human dominated world in which our human activities represent aggressive, damaging and unbalanced interactions with nature, we will increasingly provoke new disease emergences. We remain at risk for the foreseeable future. COVID-19 is amongst the most vivid wake-up calls in over a century. It should force us to begin to think in earnest and collectively about living in a more thoughtful and creative harmony with nature, even as we plan for nature's inevitable and always unexpected surprise. I love it. Do I get a, so I have to guess? Yeah, you get three, you, you, uh, we could play 20 questions or you could just go for uh, one guess. Prince Charles? Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci, wow. Right. <laughs> wow, where's that at the press conference? Where's that? <laughs> exactly. Where's exactly. that? So if readers want to uh, I, sell. I, I love it, Dr. Fauci. So, yeah. I love it. I, I, so, okay, so there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So, so you talk about the microbiome and the environment and look, the cost of, of living right now and getting on with our lives in many ways, you know, returning to the office, traveling, all the things that, you know, we all want to do, uh, going out to restaurants. We're, we're living in a sanitized world. It's sort of like the cost of doing these, these important things. And so in an over sanitized world, it's, you know, kind of what we have to do, but not good for the microbiome. And so how do you think about that, the microbiome and the role of an over-sanitized world plays with the microbiome and not good, over-sanitization, over not good for the microbiome, microbiome, very, very important to our immune system and overall ecology of the planet, the, the, the bigger picture of the microbiome. So it seems like we're kind of at odds with what we need to do to kind of move on with our lives and how to uh, flourish and, uh, you know, as individuals and as a planet. So how do you think about that? That's a big question, but. Well, so I'll, I'll start at the big level. And, and that is, uh, you know, if we look at, um, for instance, where I live in the, in the Blue Ridge, there has been an 80% decline in the flora and fauna over the past 100 years. It's like, wow, and changes in the, in the microbiome there. Interestingly, there's been about an 80% loss of the of the diversity in our own microbiomes over that same period of time. You know, coincidence? I don't know. So if we got 5% of the people, the indigenous peoples on this planet, they steward 20% of the land, but, eight, but that land has 80% of the diversity of the planet on it. Like it's, it's doable. We, if we pay attention, we can do it. So, so that's at a big picture level, and, and we need to pay attention because, because to me, the SARS-CoV-2 virus and other pandemics that will come are a reflection of this imbalanced relationship that we have of trying to control nature rather than being in relationship with it. So then what does that mean? You live in Brooklyn. So what does that mean for you? It means To me, it means spending some time in, in Prospect Park and going to the park and being there. Data out of Finland tells us that people who live in the city, who, who don't go to the park, have a different microbiome than people who live in the city and go to the park, or have a different microbiome than the people who live in the country and live near the forest. So, you know, 
we all have the ability to um, to upgrade our microbiome from wherever we're at. And this isn't about like just take more probiotics. I was going to say it's bigger than probiotics. It's you know, way bigger than probiotics. And kombucha. Yeah, uh, those are those are fine <laughs> to do. You know, but, you know, we'll talk more about the microbiome at another point in time. But, you know, recall that probiotics and these those aspects, even the fermented foods, they are, you know, kind of tourists going through our gut. They're changing what's happening just as tourists do in the economies of where we live, but can't rely on them. You know, and we're learning that even more. So, you know, prebiotics and foods that are going to have lots of different colors. And we talk about diversity. It's like the rainbow color of foods. It, it gives the diversity that provides the diversity of the microbiome that helps to strengthen the immune system. And coming back to COVID, it's like what they're finding is that people who have imbalanced gut microbiomes have imbalanced lung microbiomes. And they have a particular signature that get COVID. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That now there's there's a relationship that's going on there and it's mediated through um, the innate immune system and how it gets activated by the microbiome and the crosstalk between the gut microbiome and the lung microbiome. You know, there's also a microbiome in our, in our nares and in our mouths. And, you know, there's some ideas that you know, certain kinds of uh, strep, strep salivarius may actually be really helpful for being able to bring balance back to the oral and nasal microbiome. Um, so it, it, to me, it's just, it's so cool. Like I learned this stuff. It's like, wow, that is so amazing. It's all connected. And, you know, and like you said, oh, and there's our old friends. There they are again. Oh, there's the gut microbiome. Who would have guessed that that would have an effect? And then you stop for a second. It's like, well, of course, it has an effect on all different kinds of diseases. And here we see this idea that I think will be emerging that we talk about within functional medicine that is acute on chronic. We have an acute disease on top of chronic diseases. And it is the chronic diseases that are putting us at risk in terms of having more severity of illness. And then we get an acute disease on top of it. And that puts us more at risk. And so we see, you know, as of today, right, 7.5 million cases and 210,000 deaths in the United States. And, you know, it's not going to get better right away. It's going to continue for a while sadly well it's just why this conversation is so important and you know we used to live in a world where chronic conditions would just lead to deterioration of quality of life medication uh and then eventually uh you know a death in the distant future however today with with covid uh, they could lead to loss of life very quickly and that's scary um and I, you know i, I want to come back to this idea of, so we, we talked about strengthening the immune system. Uh, you very eloquently in a way talked about what happens uh, with, with you know, people who consume a lot of sugar and diabetics with the, like, the way that, uh, I'm gonna botch this, that it, it attaches, something atta yeah, attaches, it. attaches. It. Um, and what we know too with regards to, you know, w w people have the antibodies, they don't have the antibodies and Something that uh, Dr. David Katz discussed with us, which I thought was fascinating uh, back in June when we spoke to him, is this concept of native resistance and this idea that 
there are people out there that have something. I, I've talked to people behind the scenes who think it, you know, it's T cells, it's this, but there's something that 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 some of us have that we're not going to the antibodies aren't going to show up, but we have something where our body basically says, oh, it's another it's another coronavirus. You got to keep in mind, it's COVID-19. These things have been around for different forms of coronavirus. I've seen this before. I'm good, but the antibodies aren't going to show up. And for the most part, I, I, I'm going to be sort of immune to this. If I, I'm trying to describe this this concept, I want to what's your take on this concept of the concept of native resistance? Well, I think that the idea of of strengthening the immune system and those uh, the, whether it's the use of food and exercise and sleep and lifestyle factors and or you know plus or minus you know some specific nutraceuticals or herbs that may be helping to support that you know in this case like a like a zinc and a, a quercetin you know which are are great and simple and important that what we're doing is we're activating and strengthening the immune system and so what we want is that you know, it, it's seen that somewhere between 40 to 50% of the people who get exposed to this are not going to have symptoms. We want to be one of them. The people who have the stronger immune systems are going to be those people. They can carry it. They, they're going to wear a mask because they don't want to spread it to someone else. I mean, they can spread it to grandma at the nursing home and it can be a problem because they're still carrying it, but their immune system, you know, in those layers, right, the mucosal immune system and then the innate immune system and then the, um, and then the adaptive immune system, you know, have increasing specificity. But if we can take care of it at the level of mucosal immune system and early on, um, you know, in the, what we call the innate immune system, which, you know, every living being has, then, then we're not going to have symptoms. And that's what that native resistance is. Now, the T cells are part of the adaptive immune system, and they have been um, exposed to coronaviruses in the past. Now, that becomes relevant, and there's some studies that have said, oh, look, you know, maybe 50% of the people have, have some T cell activation that's going on that allows them to be able to deal with this. But that's not happening until the virus is already inside the cell. Like you're already well down the path. I don't want to go down that path. Well, well, let me rephrase it. So I guess what I'm interested in, let me, let me rephrase if this, if this is helpful. Sure. The, the people who are exposed, but they don't get it and they don't have the antibodies. Mm-hmm. Is is that? Do you buy? Is there? Do we know anything? Have we learned anything? Katz talks about the the cruise ship. How there were a number of people who were exposed, and mm-hmm. you know, there was there was I would say how I measure measure significant dosage, if you will, but just didn't get it. They don't have the antibodies and never got it. Like, do we know anything, or do you have any? I know it's like everything's like speculative and it's early right now. Do you have any thoughts about like the, the people out there who are exposed and for some reason? Don't don't ever contract COVID and, and don't have the antibodies. But there's something about because to me to me that's the thing that's the missing link. It just doesn't make sense to me. Also being in New York, when all the protests and the tight and the, not everyone was wearing masks, and there's just to me it seems like something we just don't really understand yet. But I'm not the I'm not the expert. Yeah. Well, there's a couple different aspects there. One has to do with the environment. You know, so we're seeing and learning more that when there are, um, you know, crowded conditions with um, with closed 
environment, you know, enclosed environment and with close contact with people, like that's a much bigger risk. That's where the super spreader events are coming from. So there's that. But that's not the question you're asking. So let me just come back to that because, you know, I think that we we find that there may be a an antibody response that goes quickly and goes away quickly. Some people don't have antibodies for more than a month or two. I have patients, you know, who who give me a story, have an exposure, tell me what's happened, and you know, we're measuring their antibodies out two, three months, and they don't have any. It doesn't mean they didn't have the disease. You know, we just don't know. And so that's true with other kinds of vaccines, like, you know, the rubella vaccine that we are sure that women who are pregnant uh, have have titers to that. Um, and there are many who have had the vaccine, but they don't have they don't have the antibodies anymore. Does that mean that they don't have the ability to fight it? Probably not. They probably still do. There probably is that native resistance that's going on. And so there's an activation that's occurred. And that's a good thing. Now, if, you know, let's take a look at yourself, Jason, and being in, you know, in a, a tight environment, you know, you didn't have symptoms and you don't have antibodies and you never tested positive, chances are that you didn't get it. Now, whether or not... I, I was convinced I had it in late December and then got tested a couple months later, no antibodies, but, you know, whatever. I'm okay. So I'm, I'm just using that as an example, but you know, chances are that that you know if you're in a situation that that you may get it. Now the the hope would be that you've got the immune resilience that's going on that is going to allow you to be able to be in that asymptomatic carrier state, and you'll you'll go on and be okay. One of the things I also want to you know spend a little bit of time talking about is. You know, those patients who, who get it, even who have mild symptoms, i.e. didn't have to go to the hospital, um, but, you know, they have fever and fatigue and malaise and, um, you know, all that, there's a subset of those patients who, have, who are having long-term problems. And we don't know how big that subset is right now. You know, sort of the estimates I've seen is around 20%. Um, but some studies show that as many as two-thirds of patients have some long-term problems um, from, from having had the infection. And we don't know if that's true for people who are asymptomatic. We're guessing not. But, um, you know, that's all part of what we're going to be looking at as well. And I think it's what's going to, what's really important is that whole aspect of immune resilience right up front. That's going to make the biggest difference. So you mentioned studies, and I'm curious, and, and, and you know, understood that the world is changing rapidly, and so many studies out there are very speculative and very preliminary. But I'm curious, like, what what are you paying attention to? What do you think is interesting? What do you think? What are you following with regards to studies on COVID in terms of, uh, you know, pre prevention, in terms of in terms of care, in terms of all of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I saw a uh, a thing come out about two weeks ago that said there are 87,000 articles on SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 um, since the beginning. So that's I'm, it. That's I'm, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's not counting. You know what we're reading in the Times and Atlantic and Medium and other places like that. That's in the peer-reviewed literature, but. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of stuff out there to be able to read. And so what, what I'm, I'm particularly interested right now in this whole phenomenon called long haulers or post-COVID syndrome and what's going on with, with those people. Because for me, that's exactly the place where a functional medicine kind of systems-based personalized approaches is, is really important. You know, I talked to uh, Zijan Chen, who's the head of the post-COVID clinic at Mount Sinai, and they're, and they're still looking at it in sort of a siloed way. Neurologist, pulmonologist, cardiologist, psychiatrist, respiratory or uh, uh, physical medicine and rehab. And I'm like, well, it's actually, it has nothing to do with those things. You know, so if we see imbalances that are going on vascularly, uh, that are going on nutritionally, that are going on immunologically, that are going on in the mitochondria and with the microbiome, let's work on those and say, how do we, how do we elevate the overall, um, not only immune resist resilience, but the metabolic health in those patients to be able to help them to make the next step. So post-viral fatigue, post-viral neurologic issues, that's been known for a long period of time. And so we're not in uncharted water. We see infections, people after infections having long-term consequences. So how do we help them? It's not the infection isn't happening anymore. It's the downstream effects of, of what damage has occurred and what the, what the body is, how the body's done damage to itself. How do we support that? And we have the opportunity. And that's where, you know, this idea of functional medicine, you know, which is going to take this a different lens and say, let's look at overall function and imbalance rather than looking at the individual organ systems. And, you know, that's what we're doing. So we focus a lot on the mitochondria. Uh, we focus a lot on on how to be able to support that. We focus on the aspects of, of engaging the immune system and the microbiome as critical factors to help, you know, rising tides lift all boats, you know, to help rise the overall metabolic health of the individual and improve their resiliency. That's where our focal point is. And so that's a lot of what I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on right at this point in time. And maybe I've sort of taken my, my eye off the ball because, you know, the studies are saying, you know, the blood supply, 1.92%, you know, other studies, maybe 5% of the population has been exposed you know, and to get the herd immunity, it's going to be 60 to 70%. So there's going to be a lot more people who are getting sick and getting out the ideas that we're talking about here are important. One of the difficulties, I'm just going to go off for a moment on one of the difficulties has been, you know, as people are trying to educate um, the population about food and about the role of overall health and well-being and about the use of some specific supplements, you know, we've seen the the FTC, uh, you know, come down on people and say, like, you can't do that. You can't, you can't focus on immune system support because that is, that is, you know, kind of uh, falsely selling um, a dream that we don't have data for. Uh, I've looked at a number of the sites who've, who have been cited, and a lot of them, they were using some sketchy stuff, and they were really trying to promote their own making money on it. But the idea of educationally 
supporting this and being able to move these ideas forward. You know, like you said, it took the CDC a long time to begin to really focus on this. It's like, this isn't rocket science. This is just helping metabolic health and improving immune resiliency. Those should be good things. What can we do to do that? That's really where the goal is. And so those are the two things where my focal point has been. And, you know, I'm looking a little bit at the vaccine issue, but there's so much unknown and there's been so little transparency about it at this point in time um, that that's mostly speculative right now. Yeah, transparency is not our strength right now. Uh, So (laughs) uh, in closing, what do you what are you worried about? And on the flip side, what 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 excites you? Well, my my worries are on on a couple levels. One, I've I've talked about the whole post COVID thing and, and what's going on, and and it appears from the p- patients I'm seeing to be pretty debilitating. Um, so I have concerns about that and how we can really understand the best tools and best ways to be able to um, dial in where the imbalances are and bring them bring them back towards health that's one thing the other thing and it's probably even a bigger concern is the way in which from a behavioral and mental health perspective this has um, paralyzed us you know it, it's it's moved us to a place of fear it's moved us to a place of distrust um, you know, the, like even the terminology of social distancing, I, I don't particularly like that. Physical distancing, I get that. That makes sense. But I don't need to be socially distant from you. I can connect with you. And, you know, and we need to continue to work to say, how do we move back into the world? You know, like, you know, so what if we wear a mask? I mean, we can still have, you know, business. We can still, you know, live our life and do our things. We probably won't be going to baseball and basketball games for a while, you know, and that'll be sad in concerts, you know, but, but we're going to find different ways to do that. But we have to understand how we as a, a collective people are going to move together with this and and where's the you know and how to have leadership around that you know if there you know there's there's some people are like saying yeah we should do this and therefore you know covid doesn't exist or don't need you know disregard it it's like no it's there we have to meet it but we also have to have to be out in the world and engaging life in a good way and um i think that that I see a lot of people not doing that, and so I have concerns about that. Whereas my hope in it, my hope is that we begin to see that our way of relating to the world has been out of control and that we actually have an opportunity to do something about this. This has slowed us down. Who would have guessed that the world could stop for like six weeks, two months? You know, I mean, when 9-11 happened, it stopped for like four days. You know, and here it stopped for a long period of time. Never would guess that could happen. And yet it shows that we can slow down. We can we can begin to ask that question, what's really important? So we do our work and we work to uh, support ourselves and each other, right? It's all about that connection to ourselves, each other in the natural world. And that's what that gives me hope that there's the opportunity to be able to do that, that this is a, a, a learning that we have and we can carry it forward in a good way. Amen. We'll close there. Patrick, thank you. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you so much. You bet. You bet.